Good morning. So this is um, this is one of my favorite times of year every four years because Saturday Night Live is doing all the fun election stuff. And uh, last night, anybody catch the uh, their version of the vice presidential debate? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So. Um, I was I was struck as I was watching their opening segment that it would not be funny at all if you hadn't watched the debate, yeah. right? I mean, they they, you know, they had these some of these sight gags where you know during the debate itself, Paul Ryan kept drinking so drinking water from this glass, so you know they had sight gags where he's taking these giant cups of water and drinking them, and then at the end during the closing statement while Biden's talking, they've got like this hamster bottle that he's drinking out of. But apart from that, it doesn't make any sense. It's not funny. There's, there's something that has happened that is presupposed that, that you, have to, you have to know. You have to have the backstory, otherwise the rest of it doesn't make sense. And I've been struck as I've been thinking about our passage for this morning. We're also going to be in the same passage the next two weeks as well. How important the backstory is to understanding what Paul has to say here in Romans. I, mean, I think this is true for all of Scripture Certainly it's true in the New Testament where you have uh, Old Testament passages and people that are, are mentioned left and right. But especially at this point in Paul's argument in Romans, I think it's key that we, that we have the backstory in mind. And because not everybody remembers and some people uh, are new to this, let me just sort of remind us all of, of the story of Israel that we find uh, given to us in the Scriptures. You'll remember God calls a people... Right? He calls Abraham. He says, go and leave your father's house, leave the land that you came from, and go into the land that I'm going to give you. And I'm going to make you a great people. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, I will bless all the nations of the earth. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Right? So, so we have God calling a people. In many ways... He's really calling a people into being at that point. You have Abraham, who, uh, whose wife Sarah was barren, right? So not a very likely thing. So there's sort of a miraculous generation of a people. The patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, end up in the land God has given them. Due to uh, famine, they end up in Egypt. And then, because this is the way these things work, the people end up getting enslaved in Egypt. And God redeems his people out of Egypt, redeems them out of slavery, rescues them in miraculous fashion. And then what does he do? He rescues them what? Just to rescue them? Say, all right, there you go. Give another start. What does he, what does he do? What's that? He builds a country, right? God gives them a land. He brings them into the land. And what does he give them in that land? What does he give them to have in that land? Milk and honey, thank you. Torah, yeah, one really important thing he gives them is Torah. In fact, he gives them Torah before he puts them in the land. Remember, it was during the wandering bit in the desert where they got Torah. God gives them Torah. What's the point of Torah? Why did he give them Torah? To lay down the laws, but why? Keep people organized. Why, Tim? So they can prosper, 
right? Not just so they can be organized, not just so they have laws. So that you know, I mean, look, some people really dig rules. The more rules you give them, the happier they are. Uh, so those people like that bit of it. But they're, they're also the whole point of having these laws, the whole point of having a society is so you can have prosperity, right? And by prosperity, I'm referring to not just, you know, having stuff, but, but to, to peace, to security. You have health, all the things that God designed us to, to have, and, and he's setting the people up in the land, having given them his Torah, so that they can live lives that are prosperous, so he can bless them, right? Right? But does that work out? No. No. What's that? It, well, it sort of works out for a time, but, but at the same time, they've got, uh, they've got some problems going on, don't they? Right? Um, I mean, for one thing, God puts them in the land. Uh, is there anything else going on in the land at the time? Other people, yeah. It's a slight inconvenience that there are people in the land that are not supposed to be there. All sorts of stuff about how God had given them ample warning that they weren't supposed to be there. If they were still there, they were the bitter enders. But they were still there. And what was the problem with those people in the land? Idolatry, right? Yeah, the people in the land were involved in all kinds of, of wicked practices. And in some ways, the, the, the root of all that was idolatry, which is what? What's idolatry? Worshiping other gods, right? So, so they're always, while they're in the land, they're always facing the temptation to do otherwise from what God's given them in Torah, right? Right? They're always given the temptation. They always have there the temptation. There, there are lots of, uh, lots of warnings about that. In fact, uh, one of my favorite is in Leviticus, and I know that's a favorite book for many of you. Uh, in chapter 18 of Leviticus, God says, do not defile yourselves in any of these ways. And I'll let you go back and read about all the interesting ways in which they might defile themselves. Don't defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled themselves. Even the land was defiled. <laughs> these people, <laughs> they defiled themselves so impressively that they managed to defile the entire land so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you must keep my decrees and my laws. The native-born, the aliens living among you, must not do any of these detestable things. For all of these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you, and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Everyone who does any of these detestable things, such must be cut off from their people. Keep my requirements. Do not follow any of the detestable customs that were practiced before you came, and do not defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord your God. So, they took the warning. They didn't defile themselves, right? Not so much. No, the, the temptation led to disobedience, which led to them being vomited out of the land, being exiled, right? Okay, 722, for the, first of all, you had a tax revolt around uh, uh, 960 or so. You had uh, the kingdom split, uh, split in the northern and southern kingdoms. 
Northern Kingdom goes into exile 722 uh, BC. Southern Kingdom in exile of 586. But basically, this people that have been given every advantage, every blessing, they've been given the land. God has said He's going to fight for them. He's going to protect them, given them His Torah so that they can live well, have prosperity in the land. Instead, they are ensnared by the practices of the wicked people who are there and the wicked practices of the nations around them. In fact, you, you keep hearing these things where people say, well, we want to be like all the other nations. They have a king, so how come we don't have a king? God's like, I'm your king. You don't need a king. No, they've got kings. We really want to have a king. God's like, it's not going to go well for you if you have a king. Not really. It, I think what we want is a king. Look, you have a king. He's going to conscript armies. He's going to tax you like crazy. He's going to build palaces. He's going to make everything a mess. You don't want a king. No, I think we really want a king. Okay, God's all right. Fine. You can have a king. Sure enough, all this stuff happens. And as the people are tempted to do the things that everybody else around them wants to do, they disobey God, they defile themselves, and the land vomits them out, right? Now, you do get in, you know, 70 years or so after exile happens, you do get the return from exile, right? And you get Torah still there, right? It's still there. God's law is still there to be followed. But the problem is now the people are having to obey Torah, not as the people who are in charge of the land, but as people who are living in the land under control of somebody else. So you have the actual geographic territory, but it's not their land. And so they have sort of a faint shadow of land, Torah, prosperity, the things that God gave them. And all the while, they still face temptation to disobedience. All the while, things are not only not as good as they used to be, but all the bad stuff that was there is still there. That's the story of God's people as they're returned from exile. They're under a succession of foreign rulers. Now, that's the situation that Jesus comes into. Right? That's a situation for the New Testament authors. But here's what's important. This is also the situation in which the whole of the Old Testament was put together in the form we have it now. Basically, the, the arrangement of the Old Testament as we have it is a product of the exile and the post-exilic period. It is a product of a people who are grappling with the question of why are we here rather than in the land where we're supposed to be? Why are we experiencing curse rather than blessing? Why do we have ourselves under the thumb of foreign rulers rather than God who gave us his Torah so that he could rule us? These stories, of course, came from earlier. You've got passages from prophets and wisdom writings and so forth from before the exile. And, and, and most of the events that are dealt with in these histories happened before the exile, but it's in the exile and in the post-exilic period that you have the Old Testament put together in the form that we have it, the form that Jesus had it, the form that Paul had it. So let's keep this in mind as we look at what Paul says in chapter 5 of Romans. Chapter 5 of Romans, starting in verse 12. Therefore, 
Paul says, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, before law was given, before Torah was given, sin was in the world, but sin isn't taken account uh, where there is no Torah. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who didn't sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. It's interesting what Paul's doing here. You know, you, you, throughout the, the New Testament, you find some of these Old Testament figures engaged with, whether uh, Moses, uh, David, Abraham a lot. We saw basically all chapter 4 of Romans. Paul's uh, working with Abraham. In Hebrews, you get Abraham, you get Melchizedek. But Paul is basically the only New Testament author who does anything with Adam. Luke in his gospel traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. Um, Jude mentions Enoch, the seventh from Adam, which uh, uh, sort of has Adam as a, uh, as a reference point. But Paul's the only one who really kind of does some theological work with Adam. And so what's interesting here is, is uh, if we look at the story of Adam as it's told in Scripture, as it's told in the version of Genesis, the version of the creation story that came out of this period, what do we see? Go back to Genesis chapter 2. When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up for He had not sent rain on the earth. There was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth, watered the whole surface of the ground. Yahweh God formed the man, or formed Adam, from the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, Yahweh, God, had planted a garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed. And Yahweh God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A little bit of geography, I'll pass over that stuff. Then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Yahweh God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it you shall surely die. Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper, counterpart suitable for him. Now, Yahweh God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, birds of the air, the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable counterpart had been found. So Yahweh God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then Yahweh God made a woman from the rib he'd taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So we have a story here of God creating a human being, 
right? We have God calling a person into being. We have God giving a command, placing him in a garden, and giving him every blessing. Does this start to sound familiar? God calls somebody into being. God gives him a command as to how he lives in the garden where he has placed him, where he has every blessing. I wonder what's going to happen. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Yahweh God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat tree from, fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. But Yahweh God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? First example of blame shifting in history. The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So Yahweh God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly, and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain and childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he'll rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Till you return to the ground, for from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And Yahweh God the man said, The man has now become just like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So Yahweh God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken, been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Temptation, disobedience, 
exile. It's almost like there's a pattern here. In fact, if you read through Torah, so many of the promises and the threats that are found, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, talk about, look, you can go one way or you can go the other. You can follow me and you will have blessing and the land will produce for you, or you can disobey me and then you will be vomited out, the land will be cursed, it will not give you what you need to survive. You can have life, or you can have death. Pick one. And the story that is told throughout the Old Testament, again, told from the perspective of a people who are putting this whole story together in a place where they have experienced the results of these choices. The story is one of having every advantage, being chosen as God's people, being blessed by him with everything that they could need, and then nevertheless falling prey to temptation, disobeying God, choosing to worship the gods of the nations around them. Often, incidentally, and I don't want to go too far with this, but often because of intermarriage with people who were not followers of God. Adam was not the first, or was the first, but he was not the last who would say, well, she's the one who gave me that. (laughs) Like that gets you off the hook. So this pattern, it seems, repeats. So the question is... is this is this how we're supposed to read this Adam story? I mean, are we supposed to read this as a a narrative about Israel, really? I think maybe we are. Let's back up now to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was. Formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. There was evening, there was morning, a second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And he said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. Land produced vegetation, bearing seed according to their kinds, trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day. And made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. What do you notice about this chapter of Genesis compared to the second chapter of Genesis, the one I read before? What's that? There's no fall, right? Yep, this is sort of giving a narrative before the fall. What else? Right, right. There's a bigger emphasis on the creation. You get a little bit of that at the beginning, but the main story in Genesis 2 is about Adam and Eve. What else do you notice? Okay, there's a broader scope. It's more of an overview. What's that? Everything's good. Yeah, that's a difference, isn't it? Everything's very good, in fact, at the end. God looks at all of it and says, very good. I'm going to go put my feet up and watch football now. Any differences in the style of the story? Are there? Yeah, it's not even a story, really. It's just sort of a narrative. The story of Adam and Eve actually has a story. You've got you know rising and falling action. There's a plot. This, you just have God creating everything. It's a narrative, and it is. It's highly structured, right? There's a a sense of, of uh, following a, a particular type of form to give the, the account that, that is given in Genesis 1. What else, what else do we find that's different? Yes, Bruce. Okay, so there's an intimate contact between God and man. What about other differences? Maybe some of you um, are being polite and not mentioning them. Yes, Pam? Uh, I was thinking of the whole first half of Genesis, 
Yeah, you could read it as an introduction or as a prelude. Yeah, it's because it's different. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Right, so you got two different names being used. Yes. Yes, Mary. Yeah, God's doing the creating, yes, and um, he doesn't. He isn't doing that uh, in a collaborative fashion, is he? He's just doing it. If you, if you compare the Genesis account, for example, to uh, Enuma Elish, the you know there there are other ancient creation stories from the ancient Near East from around the same time, and and it's a very different story. It's not one God creating everything. It's basically. God's fighting each other, God's killing each other, God's having sex with each other, sometimes doing all those, um, and, and creating things out of those kinds of activities. You've got competition among the gods. Genesis 1 is very boring in that way, isn't it? God's not competing with anybody. He's just making stuff happen. Yes, Darcy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, he, gives them, he makes them vegetarians in, the, in Genesis 1. Yeah. But everything other than animals. Yes. Right. He just basically says, here, it's all yours. Go nuts. Yeah. What? Well, um, No, I, I'm not suggesting that. Um, I'm, it's, it's, it's obvious that two different people wrote Genesis 1 and 2. Somebody stitched them together. But the, these are clearly two different stories. Let, let me ask this. When, when does humanity show up in Genesis 1? At the end. At the end, day 6. When does humanity show up in Genesis 2? Day 1. Well, it doesn't really go day 1, but it does. He, God did place the man into the garden before... Right before there was a garden. There's a difference. What? Yeah. Genesis chapter 2. When Yahweh God made the earth and the heavens, and no, feet, no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for Yahweh God had not yet sent rain on the earth. There was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Yahweh God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Right. Said he had planted, yes. Um well, there he put the man he had formed, right? Yeah, and it's it, the, the, the point is that the, the story is that these are two different takes on a creation account, right? But 
my point is, yes, as, as you alluded to, BJ, these are two different stories that are being stitched together later, right? Two different traditions that had come down over time and are now being put together. And the question is, why were they being put together? And specifically, why were they put together in the way that they were put together? And I'm arguing that the reason why is because the story that the person putting all this together is trying to tell us is not necessarily the story of exactly how God created humanity. That, uh, to be anachronistic, he's not trying to settle the creation-evolution debate. Sitting either in exile in Babylon or after exile back in the land trying to get back to what they once had. Genesis 1... If again, if you look at it in its ancient context, is a theological polemic. If you look at what tempted God's people, right? What, did, what were God's people tempted by from all the nations around them? Idolatry, right? What were the things that people worshipped? Other gods, and namely what gods? Sun god, moon god, fertility god, right? Astrology goes back millennia. This is what the writer of Genesis 1 thinks about astrology. Oh, yeah, God also made the stars. The writer of Genesis 1 doesn't even dignify the sun and the moon with their proper names. He just refers to them as the greater light and the lesser light. And light, in fact, is created on the first day. But it's not until days later that God actually gets around to creating the sun and the moon. The whole of Genesis 1 is a slap in the face to any of the people who were living around God's people. Right? It's, it's not just now that you get to live in a religiously pluralistic context. Right? This is the world that the people were living in. This is the world they were being tempted by. And the writer of Genesis 1 is saying, oh yeah, all those other things? Yeah. The one true God of Israel, he made all those things. All of it. And so when in Genesis 2, he gets around to telling the story of Adam and Eve, or possibly the very first crack at the story of Israel, he's telling a story of somebody who is given every opportunity, every benefit by that one true God who made everything, but who nevertheless is tempted to disobey God, tempted to go his own way, tempted to do as he sees fit, Tempted to listen to the voice of a competitor to the one true God. This is the story that we get in Genesis 1 and 2. And here is where I think this is important for Paul. Here is where this cashes out for Romans 5. And we're going to talk more about this next week. This is a story, if we read Genesis 2 this way, this is a story about whom? The story of Adam is really a story about whom? About Israel. Right? If we read Genesis 2 in this way, this story of Adam is really a story about Israel. So God, or Paul, writing Romans to a congregation in, in Rome is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. What is he telling his Jewish hearers, Jewish followers of Jesus who are hearing his, his letter? Now, you ain't all that, right? Go back. What did we find in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis? 
chapter of Romans, Paul talking in chapter 1, talks about all those evil, nasty, wicked things that all those wicked Gentiles do. And chapter 2, he says, guess what? You guys are doing them too, my brother Jews. You're doing the exact same thing. So he is telling a story about a particular people by alluding back to Adam. But he is also, more broadly, speaking to Gentiles as well, because this is a story about all of, about the origin of all of humanity, right? I mean, this, this story of Adam and Eve, right? This is sort of the, the prototypical first human beings. This is a story that is universal of disobedience, because Paul does say this in chapter one, right? The things they really, what you really need to know is clear to you. Your conscience informs you, and guess what? Gentiles did this. They fall. They're tempted. They disobey. So everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, is bound up under sin. Everybody has the same problem. And it goes back, Paul is saying, goes all the way back to Adam. What this means for us is what we talk about next week. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the glory the majesty of your word. We thank you for the ways that over the centuries, over millennia, you not only inspired the people who wrote it, but you inspired the ones who brought it together into the form we have. We pray that we would be faithful readers and hearers of your word, that we would have it speak to us, not necessarily as we want it to, that we would not bring an insistence that it answer our questions, but that we would humbly receive what you have to give us in your word. Pray that as we study this difficult and complicated part of Paul's letter to the Romans, pray that we would have our ears open to hear maybe things that are new, things that are challenging, things that might not be what we had expected. We pray that in all of this, we would have an attitude of submission of reverent worship. We pray that this would be to the edification of your church and to the glory of your name. And we do ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.